Welcome to CPAC Today in Politics. Coming up, the pre-entry COVID-19 testing requirement is scrapped for fully vaccinated travelers coming to Canada. Effective April 1st, 2022, fully vaccinated travelers will no longer be required to complete a pre-entry test for travel to Canada. The federal government announces an accelerated temporary residence plan for Ukrainians fleeing the war. For those who need a safe haven while the war ravages their homeland, we are creating the Canada-Ukraine Authorization for Emergency Travel. The primary motivation for this new program is that it provides the fastest way for us to start welcoming as many Ukrainians as possible and will allow them to stay for a period of up to two years. And Anita Anand says Canada may see a significant increase in defence spending. She's bringing forward aggressive options um, ahead of the budget, which is expected in, in early April, um, which could potentially exceed the 2% level. It's Friday, March 18th. I'm Mark Sutcliffe. Let's get right to the top political stories this morning. I'm joined by Joanna Smith, the Ottawa Bureau Chief for the Canadian Press. Good morning, Joanna. Good morning, Mark. So for many months now, Canadians who have left the country and come back have had to do some kind of test to return to Canada that's being scrapped now, and I know a lot of people are going to cheer this uh, just because it means it's easier to travel, but also because it's a sign, uh, it's one more thing that's being lifted, one more restriction that's being lifted as we emerge from the pandemic. So tell us the details and ultimately what this means. That's right. So this change is coming in primarily for vaccinated travelers, so they're no longer going to need to show a COVID-19 test to enter the country, and that will begin April 1st. Um, Incoming tourists will still need to be vaccinated to visit, um, and unvaccinated Canadians and other travellers who are exempt from the vaccine mandate will still need to provide a negative rapid antigen or molecular test or an accepted form of proof of recent infection of COVID-19 to enter the country. And unvaccinated travelers will also be tested on arrival uh, and again eight days later and required a quarantine for 14 days. So these rules are really changing for vaccinated travelers. But as you mentioned, it's a sign of things changing. And Federal Health Minister Jean-Yves Duclos made that link explicitly. He said this change is possible because of one, Canada's high vaccination rates and also fewer cases of the virus being detected at the border. We're really at the tail end of the Omicron wave here in Canada, and new reported cases of COVID-19 have declined quite a bit since mid-January. So it is a sign of of things being on the wane. The background of all this, though, is that this isn't necessarily completely over. Um, The World Health Organization is now saying the number of cases internationally has begun to creep up. Um, particularly in the Western Pacific region, Africa, and in Europe. Uh, There's this sub-mutation of the Omicron variant, given the nickname Stealth Omicron. Um, But, you know, despite those concerning signs uh, on the horizon, Duclos says he still believes that the high rate of fully vaccinated people in Canada will protect the country from serious outcomes. And, you know, while they need to sort of keep an eye on things and things may evolve, they, they think they'll be able to uh, to respond pretty quickly if, uh, if things change. Yeah. I, th- I think a lot of people are going to see that as an encouraging sign, uh, even if they're still, if this still isn't over and there are, are potential variants on the horizon, we'll take it for now. Uh, I think Absolutely. Yeah. It makes travel a lot easier and, and tourist groups have definitely been cheering the news as well because that was an industry that was incredibly hard hit by all of this. Yeah. 
All right, let's turn to the situation with Ukraine. And the federal government has announced um, a new plan that will accelerate the ability for Ukrainians fleeing the war to achieve temporary residence status in Canada. So tell us about that. That's right. So applications opened yesterday for this new expedited temporary visa for any Ukrainians who are fleeing the Russian invasion who want to come to Canada while really figuring out what to do next. You know, the UNHCR has been saying that there are now 3 million Ukrainians who have left the country, but many of those people um, really want to stay close to home, um, or if they don't want to stay in in a neighboring country, they want to come somewhere like Canada, they don't want to necessarily make a decision that they are leaving Ukraine behind forever. They really want to wait for the outcome of this war. So the program uh, that Canada is offering will now let them stay up to three years instead of the original two that was announced. And then they could potentially stay for longer if they end up deciding to become permanent residents. It's it's really an entirely new way of welcoming refugees in Canada. Canada has typically been hesitant to provide temporary refuge to people from countries in conflict because there was always uncertainty around whether they would leave uh, once the temporary, uh, you know, stay expired. Um, and Immigration Minister Sean Fraser has said that, you know, this crisis, this conflict demanded quite a different solution because of the massive number of people who were displaced over such a short period of time. We're talking about just 20, you know, two, three days now. Um, and yet, he, you know, we did ask him to look ahead and, and consider whether this new approach is something that Canada would bring in looking forward. And he said, listen, Canada would be foolish not to take advantage of the lessons learned during this conflict. And and if future crises have similar facts, they could look at taking this approach as well, um, you know, provided this ends up being a successful program. So so that that would be quite a different way to handle things. It'll be interesting to see whether that does get implemented going forward. Now, related to Ukraine as well, there has been a debate this week. Uh, There's been a debate for a long time, obviously, but it's increased this week over how much Canada should be spending in its defense budget. It's uh, there, there are countries, including Canada, that made a commitment several years ago to a certain threshold of GDP, 2%, as part of their their commitment to NATO, and Canada has never spent at that level uh, in recent years. Uh, but Anita Anand, the defense minister, seems to be opening the door to increasing defense spending, whether it gets to that level or not, at least spending more in that area because of the current situation in the world. That's right. And as you mentioned, you know, this is not a new goal. It's a goal that NATO countries agreed to back in 2006. Um, However, so few countries have actually reached it. And Canada, I think right now, is at the fifth lowest among the NATO countries um, in terms of spending on defense, according to a percentage of GDP. The number last year was 1.39%. And the Liberal government has really never had a plan to to meet that target. In fact, um, when the Liberals released their big defense policy back in 2017, the pro- they projected spending reaching 1.5% of GDP by 2024. Um, and the PBO recently said that much of that capital spending is actually being pushed further down the road due to delays over big projects like the never-ending one on fighter jets, right? But but we're in a new context, obviously, and Defense Minister Anand um, has suggested that will change. She did tell the CDC this week that 
She's bringing forward aggressive options um, ahead of the budget, which is expected in, in early April, um, which could potentially exceed the 2% level or hit the 2% level or come in just below it. Um, and she says we're going to, you know, they're going to move forward with increased defense spending because she acknowledges that the, the threat environment is really changing rapidly um, and that she also added that continental defense is a priority for, for her and the Liberal government. So that's quite a different tone and argument than, than has been made in previous years. You know, when, whenever the 2% goal at NATO would come up, the Liberals had typically said that, you know, our contribution is bigger than the numbers suggest. Um, and they had pointed to, for example, the presence of Canadian troops in Latvia um, and that they were taking time to get things right, that they wanted wanted these numbers to be a true accounting um, of how much was spent. So it, it's been really uh, interesting to see quite a rapid shift in in their take on this. Yeah, for sure. Not something that people necessarily expected from this particular government, but as you say, lots of things have changed. So uh, not uh, it's it's probably consistent with, with the way things are in the world right now. Um, Joanna, as we wrap up, let's talk about the Conservative leadership race, because there's been a lot of focus, obviously, on the three or four first people into the race, but there's someone else who's joining. Uh, Scott Aitchison, who is uh, an Ontario MP, um, a former municipal politician, and he has uh, already made it clear he's running, and I I gather his official launch will be on Sunday. That's right. He put out a uh, video on social media this week with some heavy rock music and pickup trucks and, and, uh, you know, a a slogan saying, you know, to be bold, and so clearly... uh, a campaign is uh, about to get underway. Um, so, yeah, Scott Aitchison, it was interesting during, I went to go back and, and read his speech during the debate on the Emergencies Act, and he was really giving what I think could be potentially described as a campaign-style speech um, in talking about the protest, and he really sort of made this appeal for unity in Canada. Um, he was talking about how everyone has the right to peaceful protest, but no one has the right to park a truck in the middle of a city street for three weeks. But he also said that, you know, while we have a right to disagree with those who've chosen not to get vaccinated, we don't have a right to call them racist or misogynist. Um, You know, and he says that people can have difference of opinion, um, but, you know, we we should find a way to to get along. So I I think we can maybe expect to see some of that uh, in his campaign. And the race is definitely widening. Uh, I believe he would be the seventh candidate at this point to uh, to declare that uh, that they're in mm-hmm. the running. All right. It's going to be very interesting to watch. Joanna, thank you for joining us today. Have a great weekend. You too, Mark. Thanks a lot. That's Joanna Smith, the Ottawa Bureau Chief for the Canadian Press. Allies need to invest a minimum of 2% of GDP on defence. Now, here's what political columnists and commentators are writing about today. In the Hill Times, Jan Top Christensen says Canada needs to swiftly beef up NATO engagement. Christensen writes, Since Russia's invasion of Ukraine, the international security landscape has dramatically changed. Neutral Sweden and Finland are now considering joining NATO. Germany is saying goodbye to its pacifist low-defense budget. Back in 2014, NATO countries committed to reach 2% of GDP level for defense spending. Canada, with 1.39%, is among the five countries at the bottom. Increasing Canada's defense budget to 2% 
would be a very important political signal to Putin's Russia. In the Globe and Mail, Alex Wilner claims that the West is allowing Vladimir Putin to escalate his way to victory. Wilner writes, Putin's invasion of Ukraine and the West's response to his flagrant violation of Ukrainian sovereignty have brought renewed focus on the risks of escalation. Yet which side truly benefits from this situation is less well understood. At the moment, Putin has escalation dominance in Ukraine. There are things Russia appears willing to do and threaten to have its way, including hints about using its nuclear arsenal. Conversely, the West appears unwilling to do a great many things, including installing a no-fly zone over Ukraine, which risks slipping the world into nuclear war. The current imbalance serves Putin's goals and risks paving him a road to victory. In the Toronto Star, Rick Salutin writes that Conservative Party leadership candidates are sorely lacking in life experience outside politics. Salutin writes, Start with Pierre Poilievre at 16 in Calgary. He was selling Reform Party memberships. He was always a prairie, U.S.-style right-winger, never part of the historically continuous party that reached back to Sir John A. and became known as Progressive Conservatives. Jean Charest is 20 years older, but similar in trajectory. He became an MP at 26 in 1984. He led the PCs starting in 1993 after they'd been decimated, then became Quebec's Liberal leader and Premier. He's always seemed old before his time, but he may be catching up. Patrick Brown was elected to Barrie City Council at 22, became an MP in 2006, then provincial PC leader in 2015. Of the three, I'd say Brown comes closest to having real-life experience in the sense that he was backstabbed by allies, deserted by staff, and got panicked into quitting, as opposed to being a parliamentary secretary, shadow finance critic, or two-time head of the PC Youth Federation. Now, here's what's coming up on today's political agenda. The Prime Minister will speak with the Taoiseach of Ireland, Michael Martin, and chair a meeting of the Incident Response Group on the situation in Ukraine. Transport Minister Omar Al-Gabra will announce new funding to help the Billy Bishop Toronto City Airport recover from the effects of the COVID-19 pandemic and to support continued air services and infrastructure projects at the airport. Families, Children and Social Development Minister Karina Gould will join Yukon's Minister of Education to announce additional support for recruitment and retention of early learning and child care workers across the Yukon. And Justice Minister David Lametti will make a funding announcement regarding support for vulnerable youth in Montreal. And that's CPAC Today in Politics for Friday, March 18th. Tune in to Primetime Politics Weekend on CPAC for coverage of all the week's events. Our podcast returns Monday morning. Have a great day.